0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. Picked up my iPad yesterday and noticed there was this white stuff all in the, in the corners that was dry and crusty and I was trying to get it out, trying to figure out what the world it's on my iPad. And then I remembered last week I spilled creamer all over it. And so not only is it fun at the time, but when it dries it gets white and crusty. So I'm going to have to take it out of the case and... Wipe it all off. Romans chapter ten is where we find ourselves, and we're going to pick up in, in verse eleven. That's where our comments are going to be uh, today. Just um, wondering why it looked a little funny to me. It's in First Corinthians. Let's start. Let's just start in verse five, and if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of Scripture together. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim to you. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would Use it this morning. We might be open and receptive to what is proclaimed, what is here, truth. We ask that our hearts are opened, soft and pricked. You grant grace mercy to us that where we don't believe and struggle Lord I pray that we would turn from our sin and place our faith and trust in you I pray that sin wouldn't be our right it wouldn't characterize who we are but our faith in Jesus Christ would. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to accomplish that end today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. I frequently listen to a a podcast called uh, Core Christianity. It is a 25-minute podcast by uh, Michael Horton, who is a theological theology professor, and Adriel Sanchez, a pastor. And they answer questions that people have about the Christian faith. They call into the show. They ask questions via email or, or Facebook. It's a great podcast. It's worth a listen. The other day, one of the, the questions related to homosexuality. I believe the, the question was this, If can one be a practicing homosexual and still be a Christian? I mean, it, it's quite a, a question. I love how Michael Horton and Adriel Sanchez handle questions on their show. They get questions all over the place about theological issues, about moral issues, about Bible questions, and they answer all sorts of the questions. They just answer them. Some controversial, some not. I think that's what people like about the show. This question, the one about homosexuality, is quite an issue for our day. When I say are, I mean R as in the church. This isn't an issue that has nothing to do with the church. We just saw this in the United Methodist Church. They took a vote on this issue, and we're going to see in the coming... Weeks, months, years, how that all plays out. There are churches that are joining the the Central District Conference that have left other denominations over this issue, but it isn't just liberal churches and liberal denominations that are dealing with these things. There was an article that I read not long ago that talked about how, how young people from Christian families who had strong views on these things were coming back into their homes And they were asking all sorts of questions. Their parents would have never dreamed them ask Am I bisexual? Is it possible that I might be gay? What about my gender? Some are are struggling with these things more than others, some get caught up in that lifestyle. And then it is those in the church that ask these questions. Is it possible to be a homosexual and a, prom, a Christian and a, prom, and a practicing homosexual? Michael Horton, in, in relay in answering the question on the podcast, tells a, a story of someone he knew that struggled with same-sex attraction. And this person went to, the, went to the church, went to a church, went to a pastor for, for counsel, said, hey, struggling with this, I need help. And the pastor said, there's not much I can do. You've been handed over to Satan. The young man then proceeded to go home and kill himself. The point is how the church deals with these questions are extremely important during the height of the AIDS epidemic. It wasn't unheard of that Christians would say things like, I'm actually grateful for that disease because it, it takes care a lot of a of lot of the mess. It weeds sinners out. Some of us may have heard something like that. We have, may have articulated something like that. Horton brings up an interesting point. What if there was a disease that killed gossipers? Would we think the same? I think we might look at that very differently. Horton's point in his answer to the question is that, yes, Christians sin and Christians struggle with sin. We all sin, but the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the non-Christian believes that that sin is his or her right. Right? It is their right to sin. I'm attracted to somebody of the same sex. That is what I want. That is my right. If I want to be a Christian and a practicing homosexual, I will. Others cannot tell me what is right and wrong for me. That is my right to do these things. The Christian sees it as sin and they fight against it. They go to pastors for counsel. They seek help. They find friends to support them. They get involved in a church where people will come alongside them and encourage them with the gospel and pray for them and with them. As opposed to going to a church as it is full of self-righteous people that constantly point to the sin of others while ignoring their own. That helps no one. The same could be said about any sin. Gambling, abuse of drugs or drinking, gossip mentioned earlier. Can a believer struggle with these things? Absolutely. But do they believe it is their right? No, they see sin for what it is. It's a affront to the holiness of God and therefore they long to deal with it. And the church then is to come alongside them in this process. That's part of our responsibilities as members of a church. Now I bring this up at the onset because of something Paul said introduces here in verse 11, which is the idea of shame. What Michael Horden and Adriel Sanchez did in their answer is really point out that those who are, and we'll just stick with the sin of homosexuality for a moment, but any sin, those who do not have any shame for their sin, who think it is their right They don't see it as sin. How could they? When it's what they desire. When it is what seems so natural. When it is their right to do these things. When one can't help who they are or who they are attracted to. If this is the case, then why should a person feel any shame for it? We all do these things in one degree or another even Christians. Christians sometimes feel entitled to our sin for one reason or another. We justify our sin for a certain time, but then we read something in Scripture. We hear a message, a brother or sister lovingly confronts us and we see sin for what it is. And all of a sudden, there isn't the the justification and entitlement to our sin anymore. There's Holy Spirit-wrought shame for being so foolish to think that we could have Jesus in our sin. That we didn't see the, the serious threat that it was that we remain in our sin and unrepentant. This is David's experience, isn't it? that he sinned with Bathsheba, he had her husband killed, he was going on with life, he was feeling no shame. He was king, that was his right to do that. He was living in that sin, and then entered the prophet Nathan, who exposed his sin, who lovingly comes to David and says, you are that man. And then David, he sees that sin for what it was, and he turned and repents to God, and we have Psalm Now, my point here at the onset is that we live in an age that is ever increasingly shameless. And the reason for that is that people today just don't see sin as sin. And even the church, we see these things are infiltrating us. And entire denominations are asking questions at this time in history that just a few decades ago, people wouldn't dream they ask. And the reason has to do with a lack of shame for sin. I think to understand verse 11, when it says... Everyone who believes will not be put to shame. We need to understand a little bit of what it means to be put to shame. So let's take a moment and look at shame in the scriptures. When we look at the word shame or ashamed in the Bible, we find that these words occur about 181 times in the Bible. 149 in the Old Testament, about 32 in the New Testament. So in scripture, shame is an important idea. So the question is, is what does shame mean? If you go to the Oxford English Dictionary, it defines it as this, a painful emotion arising from the consciousness of something dishonoring, ridiculous, or indecurious in one's own conduct or their circumstances. Or, second definition, being in a situation which offends one's sense of modesty or decency. We don't hear of shame in the first sense much, do we? I included the second because we don't exactly hear that definition of shame either. Being in a sense being in a situation that offends one's sense of modesty or decency. Usually, people doesn't wear, wear something that brings them shame. But other people shame them for what they're wearing. See the difference? We hear it related to that. But we're not supposed to feel shame. I mean, if our world, if somebody comments on another sense of modesty or sense of decency, they're the ones doing the shaming. You shouldn't be ashamed of those things. That's primarily, I think, how we use the word. The Bible, however, seems to carry the definition further than the dictionary does. Dictionary, remember, says painful emotion arising from the consciousness of something dishonoring or ridiculous in one's conduct or circumstances. There are a number of things that the Bible speaks of when it speaks of shame. The first would be disappointment. Or as one said, an acute disappointment, meaning being let down by someone or something in which they have believed. Think about that. Being let down by someone or something in which you believed in. Notice how Paul uses the word in Romans Romans 1.16. We know that verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. He uses the same word really again in chapter 5, verse 5. There he says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in in Romans 1, 16, when Paul says that he isn't ashamed of the gospel, he, he doesn't mean that he's just not merely embarrassed by it although that's true. But he's sure that he's never going to be let down by it. That's the idea. He's never going to be disappointed in it. It's never going to let him down because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. When he says he's not ashamed of it, he means that the gospel is never going to disappoint him. It will never let us down. In Romans 5, 5, the NIV there actually translates the word shame as disappointment. So we, we would read, and, and hope does not disappoint us. It does not let us down. So in terms of the text, we find ourselves in, in, in Romans ten eleven. we could say that those who trust in Jesus, who believe in him, will never be disappointed by him either in this life or the next, because Jesus will always be found to be faithful to his promise to us completely. This is why missionaries, people spreading their their faith, are willing to do that, even if it's going to cost them their life, because they know what? Jesus Christ will never disappoint. He'll never let me down. He will remain sure to his promise and I will never be put to shame. Another way the scriptures speak of shame is being confounded. So this takes shame a bit further and it envisions a situation where a person is is confounded or left speechless. This is the way Job felt at his suffering. Job 10 says something like, even if I'm innocent, I cannot lift my head. I'm so full of shame. I mean, I'm so sick. I'm so hurt. I'm so tired of this that I am so worn out that I can't even protest my innocence anymore. He was left speechless by suffering. Ezekiel 16 63, God says of those who have done evil. He says, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation. One commentator was commenting on this and he pointed out that one of the most offensive things about sin is that it is never silent. Whatever the sin, the one who is committing it, who thinks it's his or her right They'll always find excuses They'll always blame God They'll blame others They'll go further They'll blame situations Or their environment Or their genetics But this will not be the case In the day of God's judgment In that day all of sin And all of the reasons people have To hang on to their sin The circumstances And all the excuses Are going to be laid bare And the shame of the wicked will be so profound that they will be utterly speechless. There will be no protesting, no excuses, but simply unable to talk, totally humiliated and disgraced. And the fact is, no one whose sin has not been dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ we'll have a single word to say. So when our text says that those who believe in Jesus will not be put to shame, he's saying that they will not be left silent. They will not be left wanting because their sin was dealt with in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They won't be found in their sin. They'll be found clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Quite a difference, isn't it? Shame also carries with it the idea of exposure. Being exposed. Specifically exposure of our sins and our inclination to sin. We find this at the the onset of the scriptures. We're told in in Genesis 2 that, that Adam and Eve, before the fall, were both naked and they felt no shame. I mean, what would they have been ashamed about? They were innocent, they hadn't sinned to that point. So they stood before God and each other completely exposed, completely innocent. There was nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. They didn't have shame in their own lives. Sometimes there are things in our lives that no one else sees. We hide it. Our shame is secret. That was so with Adam and Eve. There was no secret sin. They stood completely exposed before one another and before God. No shame. But then, when they sinned in the next chapter, they did feel shame immediately. They tried to hide their nakedness, they tried to to hurry up and, and make clothes out of leaves. And when God came into the garden to find them, he had to look for them because they were eagerly trying to hide from him. All of a sudden, because of their sin, they felt shame and they tried to hide it. Just as we continue to do today. But in the day of final judgment, how will that look? Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 23. He said, on that day, they will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover me. I mean, this is how great the exposure of sin is going to be. And that shame that people will long for a mountain to fall on them instead of having their sin exposed. Again, in our text, in Romans chapter 10, we are promised that those who believe will not be put to shame. Why? Because Jesus bore that weight of sin. He bore that shame for them. There's another element of shame that is disgrace. We've mentioned this already with the rest. Disgrace is extreme humiliation. The prophet Daniel, when speaking of God's judgment, says that those that died, he said, some will awaken to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Think about that for a moment. Those that have died, some are awakened to to everlasting life, gloriousness. And some everlasting shame and contempt, disgrace, humiliation, everlasting. You ever been humiliated? I have been. More times than I care to admit or want You know, the thing with humiliation is it usually lasts for just a short time. Maybe the the ripples go on. Everlasting contempt. We are told that those who are in Christ Jesus, those who believe in him, who have been justified by faith in Jesus, will not be put to shame they will not be humiliated on that last day. They will not face disgrace. They will face life. So what's the the point of all this? Just think about this for a moment. Those that do not trust Christ, they might be shameless now. There might be, not be, as Romans 3 makes abundantly clear, there might not be any fear of God before their eyes, but there will be a day in which they will be overcome with shame, and that is when they stand before the judgment seat of God. On the flip side, there are those that believe and trust Christ. While they might be made objects of ridicule and scorn now, While they may be objects of shame by unbelievers, they will have no shame hereafter. And the shame that one endures now for Christ's sake is nothing compared to the shame that one will endure without Christ for eternity. So, there are those. We've been saying this, by the way, for chapters now, there are two groups of people. So there are those who have no sense of shame now, but will have shame one day. When they face judgment, the author of Hebrews says that it is appointed or decreed that we die and then face judgment. I find it interesting that the world, those on the outside of Christianity, speak, as, speak of Christians like they have a, a blind faith or more specifically a, a faith in faith. Well, they build their lives on trusting in fact in objective realities. For instance, the Sioux Falls Atheist Club, they put advertisements and stuff on. Actually, I don't think they say club. It's just the Sioux Falls Atheists. But they have gatherings where they share ideas and support each other. Um, so they're, they're a club. But part of their slogan is, just because you can imagine it, doesn't make it so. I mean, I think that is really how those on the outside often view Christians. People imagining something that they want to be true. You want a world that is full of unicorns and happy things. And that's just not the way the world is. So just because you can imagine something doesn't make it so. They view us as imagining something that is contrary to reality, and that we cling to those things in faith with no real reason for what we believe. We would agree that Christians have faith, though. But we would say it's not a faith in faith. We would say that is where we're misunderstood. We wouldn't say that we just want Christianity to be true so we believe it, we would say that our faith is placed in an objective reality of Jesus Christ's life and work on our behalf. And we cling to that. We trust that. We know it to be true. Of course, Christians are not the only people that have faith, though. Right? Unbelievers and even atheists have faith. We all trust something, we all find our, our meaning in, in, in life in, in something, our reputations. I mean, as long as others think well of us, then we have meaning in our life. Achievements, the more we climb the the corporate ladder or gather praise or awards in some way or another, that's what makes life count. Some think in terms of their investment portfolio, the property they have, the balance in their bank account. Others, it's faith placed in family or friends or other people. For some, it's relationships that they have with the opposite sex or the same sex gives life meaning. And therefore, that is where our trust lies. Of course, for the Christian, to be honest, we still struggle here too, don't we? I mean, what we're talking about is idolatry and we would be foolish to think that that there are not times in which our faith is misplaced. We start trusting in those things over the, the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Christian doesn't linger there. For they realize in one way or another that Their faith is misplaced and they respond to put their faith in Jesus Christ. They respond to their acknowledgement of that sin, that idolatry in faith and repentance. Now thinking about the unbeliever and the misplaced trust, we must admit that there are those things here, the things that we all place our trust in at times that don't last. Our reputations, for instance, is the easiest thing to, to lose. Hardest thing to build up, easiest thing to lose. Remember when I was in trouble as a teen, my dad told me once that there was a, a time in which he trusted me, but for whatever area it was it, it, was, it, it was in that I blew his trust, he said it was going to be difficult for me to earn that trust back. It's going to take some time. The fact is, through the many things that people place their trust in, they don't last Friends leave. Those closest to us reject us. Our wealth can be gone in an instant. And of course, when we die, these things really mean nothing. I mean, what does a human reputation mean in heaven? Nothing. Someone I read said that our reputation in heaven was actually worse than nothing because we are sinners, and according to the Bible's teaching, the only reputation that we have in heaven is our rejection of God. The only reputation that we have in heaven is for our breaking the laws of God and disregarding his warnings. The commands from the Old Testament and the New Testament are clear. Be holy as I am holy. Jesus said it again in Matthew 5.48 that we are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. No one's done that. What good is our reputation in heaven? What about wealth? What good is our wealth according when we die? I mean, of course, we're not going to take it with us. But our wealth wouldn't do God any good. God created it. He owns all things. What does he need our accumulation of things. Wealth actually exists in one sense to show us that our coveting and hoarding of, all, of God, all that God has entrusted us with should point us or drive us to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. One might have a great friend and trust that friend to the end, but on the last day, even our friends are going to fail us. There's a popular meme that gets passed around that talks about how a great friend bails you out of jail and doesn't even ask what you did or any questions about it in the end. It's always going to be there for you. That's the sign of a great friend. But on the last day, there will be no friend to bail us out. On the day of judgment, each will be concerned for his or her own standing before God and will not be thinking of friends at all. Spurgeon said it this way in a sermon on this text. He says, it will be sorry business if we have been trusting in our own good temper, our charity, our patriotism, our courage, or our honesty. And when we come to die, shall be made to feel that these cannot satisfy the claims of divine justice or give us passport to the skies. How sad to see robes turned to rags and comeliness or attractiveness into corruption. Here's the point, there will be a day when people who have have had no shame here, who haven't thought an instance about shame concerning their sin, they've trusted in good reputation, lots of friends, they haven't thought anything about sin, they glory in it, they believe it's their right, they will experience shame in a biblical sense on the day of judgment. The prophet Jeremiah talked about these people in Jeremiah 6, 15. He said that these people had not shame at all and do not even know how to blush. But it is these that have a word and a reason for everything. And they will be utterly confounded in the end. They will be utterly dumbfounded and left speechless at the judgment of Christ. They will find that all of their objects, all of of their hope, everything they place their faith and trust in in this life are found empty and they have nothing to say in the light of revelation of God's justice. Their shame will be exposed. They will be disgraced in their own eyes, and the eyes of all humanity for all of eternity. Not a pleasant thought. So there are those that have no shame now in this life, but shame later. There's also another category. And that is people that are, that are Christians who trust in Christ now. Something that may lead them to being objects of ridicule. They might be mistreated and scorned. Unbelievers might shame them, but these believers really have no shame now. For the believer now, there is no shame. There's no reason to be now or hereafter. We said earlier that shame in Scripture was disappointment. That Christ would never disappoint. He is the object of our trust and he'll never let us down. Just think of what that trust in Christ means. How is it that we could be disappointed at the end? If we're a Christian and we place our trust and belief in Jesus Christ, how is it that we could be disappointed in the end? I mean, if we were to believe in him now and then in eternity find out that he's not the savior that he claimed to be or that we imagined him to be, that would bring us disappointment. It would leave us speechless in the end, wouldn't it? We could find out that His death on the cross was not an adequate sacrifice for the punishment of our sins. That he actually didn't have the the power to keep us from failing or falling in this life, to raise us from the dead. His power wasn't enough for us. That would bring us disappointment. We might have reason to be ashamed. We might be shamed if we confessed him openly before others. We pleaded with others to to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior only to find out in the end he couldn't save us or them. That might bring us shame. We might be disappointed if we placed him first in our lives and everything in our life revolved around him. But yet there were so many good things to enjoy that we missed out on because he was not really the treasure that was greater than all other treasures that we thought him to be. In other words, if we traded all of what the world had to offer for Christ, and Christ was not worth it in the end, yes, that would bring us shame. But it's not. The fact is, Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He's the very son of God, the one that came to seek and save that which is lost. He is Jesus. He himself is the the king of all things. Everything is in his sovereign hand. He is at the beginning. He is the end. He is the alpha, the omega. He's the good shepherd, the light of the world, the living water. And if we come to him thirsty, he's going to give us drink and we'll never thirst again. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And we come to the Father through him. He's the Word of God, the Lamb of God that takes away sin of the sin of the world. One cannot go wrong placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because he will not lead to disappointment. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Point is, even when your brother lets you down, and those closest to you bring disappointment, Jesus will never disappoint those who believe in him. We talked about this for a moment earlier, but one might ask, well, aren't Christians sinners too? The answer is, of course they are. But they are sinners who have been forgiven of their sin and their nakedness and exposure after the fall has been covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The story of Adam and Eve is beautiful. I mean, it isn't a beautiful story. But the parts of hope for them, after all, hope seemed to be lost, is beautiful. They were created innocent. But in their eating the forbidden fruit, that innocent was lost. And they were naked and they felt shame. In their state of innocence, they felt no shame. But after they sinned, there was exceeding great shame. Shame. And this was proven by them trying to cover their nakedness. And when God came into the garden, they tried to hide. That's where we left off earlier, but it isn't the end. God came to them in the garden to expose their sin, to deal with their sin. God never ignores sin, all sin must be dealt with. And this was the case in Genesis. God, in this case, exposed it and then he judged it. There were consequences for their sin. Death. But the story does not stop there. These were told that one day there would be a descendant of the woman who would have a child who would crush the head of the serpent and deal with the curse of sin and death that God just declared forever. That God just judged this them for this sin, and God turns around and says, But I'm going to give you the the remedy. And then God did something remarkable for Adam and Eve. We're told that God killed animals, made them clothes, skins, and clothed them. It's a wonderful picture. Adam and Eve could never go back to the state of innocence. Innocence cannot be restored, but they could go forward. And the way forward was being clothed in the skins that God clothed them with. And of course, to those of us who have read the whole story, realize that these clothes symbolize being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Given to all who place their faith and trust in him. So for the Christian, is there shame? Well, yes but it's recognized, confessed, and dealt with permanently in Christ Jesus. Sin is real, and so is the shame that accompanies it, but the atonement is real too. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning, you stand amongst the people of two different groups. Either there is shame for your sin now. You've been justifying your sin, not taking it seriously. When you look at sin, you've been seeing it as your right. You've been making excuses. And those excuses have worked for you. In other words, you've been living in your sin. For perhaps today you see that. You understand that if you continue this way, standing in your own righteousness, that as the text says, you will be put to shame. The remedy is to stand with the other group. Those that see their sin as shameful, they recognize that because of their sin, they deserve to be put to shame on the last day. And that in and of themselves, there is no hope. So they flee to Christ. And they find in him perfection and obedience that they could not achieve themselves. They find in him the perfect righteousness that we so desperately need. So they place their faith, their trust in him. They believe in him. We believe that he is who he says he is. That he came to free us from the curse of sin. And that when he died, he took our place, bore the penalty of God's wrath that we deserved And it is because of him that we can be forgiven of our sins. The text is absolutely clear. Those that believe in him will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your word. We thank you for the promises Thank you for the, the trustworthiness of it, that we don't have a, a blind faith, a, a hope, something that we imagine to be true because we could have never imagined your plan of salvation. We could have never comprehended a Savior so great that would free us from our sin, that would take the shame that we deserved on Himself. It's uncomprehendable. Lord, we pray that if there are those here this morning that are living in their own sin, trusting in their own righteousness in one way, shape, or form, Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes, they would see the the beauty of the gospel and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.